0: Welcome back once again to Principles of Environmental Toxicology. Well, in today's lecture, we're going to do the second in a series of four case study lectures on environmental chemicals. Uh, Today's lecture, what we'll do is continue our discussion of inorganic toxicants in the environment and focus on several of them. We'll use these case studies actually uh, to learn and go in depth uh, a little bit more on some toxicants, in particular uh, cyanide, uh, looking at a particular release incident in an aquatic ecosystem and learning a little bit more about uh, cyanide toxicity. And as well, we'll introduce, I guess, for the first time uh, in depth and detail here in Principles of Environmental Toxicology, the concepts of radionuclides as toxicants. And we'll use this to explore some uh, uh, mishaps such as Chernobyl and Three Mile Island in our environmental history, as well as some of the challenges, the future challenges in terms of managing what is referred to as mixed waste, Uh, what happens, especially uh, historically, in the the run-up to World War II with all of the nuclear weapons uh, manufacturing operations when you had not only these extraordinarily hazardous radionuclides, but you also had the typical uh, contaminants such as solvents and uh, heavy metals that were associated with manufacturing operations. For today's lecture, our learning objectives, we'd like to have you be able to examine the cause and effects of the release of an industrial cyanide heavy metals impoundment uh, in a major European river system. Uh, This is and another case study uh, in Spain are going to discuss uh, chemicals that are stored and managed uh, on large-scale mining and milling operations and what happens when things go bad. Uh, We're going to have, as well, you examine the heavy metals released from a tailings dam failure in southwestern Spain. All of these happened, I think, in the past uh, uh, six or so years. We're going to have you be able to describe the science and some of the toxicological impacts of ionizing radiation resulting from radionuclides. And so in a certain sense, this is our introduction to radionuclides, uh, radiochemistry, if you will, radioenvironmental chemistry, and the relative risk of all of the potential radionuclides that are released by various nuclear processes that we use in industries, such as uh, electrical power generation, and also uh, results resulting from the uh, manufacture of uh, weapons uh, using nuclear ingredients. would like you also to be able to understand the science and some of the issues around what is again referred to as mixed waste management, and this is a U.S. focus. Uh, We have uh, 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 dozens, if not hundreds, of DOE and DOD sites that have some level of mixed waste management concern. We'll talk about the scope. Uh, It's a multi-billion dollar opportunity for the future in terms of making things better for some of those that are employed in government service and contracting and in engineering, trying to come up with some of the solutions to some of these tremendous challenges. We'll then uh, also uh, finish up, and we'll do a video as well, uh, examining some of the technological difficulties associated with managing these radionuclides, especially when they migrate into the subsurface. For a long time, we thought that burying it and pouring it on uh, the soil was a way to get rid of all sorts of waste materials. Uh, we now find with things that have half-lives of hundreds, if not thousands of years, uh, this was probably the worst-case scenario, especially where there is a potential for impact to groundwater or a resurfacing uh, down gradient down the hydraulic gradient. We'll focus on the Hanford Reservation. Uh, this is about uh, uh, 200 miles or so uh, west of uh, our university, and how the subsurface plumes from storage tanks there are migrating towards the Columbia River, Columbia River being a major aquatic ecosystem in the northwestern, Pacific Northwest of the United States. Well, our first case study is uh, in Romania. This is uh, Bayamare. This happened in January 2000, so this is relatively recent history. So big, uh, problematic uh, environmental incidents uh, are a part of our most recent environmental history as well as uh, the environmental history of decades ago. This particular case study details a cyanide leak leak from a uh, gold smelter operation uh, that polluted a major European river system. Uh, mining operations for gold use cyanide in heap leach extraction uh, processes uh, and the residual cyanide uh, is stored with the heavy metals the slurries and some of the milling tailings uh, behind dams these are large quite often acid rock drainage containing uh, solutions Uh, in this particular case uh, the break in a tailings dam, this is a 25-meter break. Uh, a, this is an artificial man-made dam. Behind it, uh, many gallons of waste. In this particular ca- release, there was 100,000 cubic meters of waste, not only as the slurry, but also as the dissolved substrates in the water that were released into the Tiza Danube River system. The Danube is Europe's largest waterway. This particular accident wiped out uh, fish stocks and threatened uh, water supplies in several of the countries uh, downstream uh, from the spill. And this is a pretty significant toxicant uh, cyanide, as you probably understand at this point in time. in your uh, principles of environmental toxicology training is an acute toxic Acute toxicant, and therefore uh, has the ability uh, to have uh, very acute uh, lethality, uh, especially in an aquatic ecosystem. Release such as this one. Give you some uh, geospatial information. Uh, Biomare is up in the Carpathian uh, Mountains uh, here in eastern Romania. You can see that it is near these uh, river systems as you flow down gradient. Here's the Tisa and the junction of the Tisa into the Danube around Belgrade. This is a fairly uh, major operation. This particular map comes from uh, around 2000. It still has Yugoslavian the data that we'll present today still refer to the former Republic of Yugoslavia, although we know that in 2003 it was divided into uh, uh, Croatia and uh, Serbia-Montenegro. Uh, the background of this particular release uh, was that there was a particularly heavy snowfall that winter. It caused an overflow of the tailings dam. As the overflow of these tailings dams sometimes are just earthen dams, rock and earth packed in. Uh, they typically are engineered, uh, but in this particular case, obviously, it was not engineered sufficiently. This wastewater containing the cyanide from the processing of the gold operation uh, uh, Leaked into the adjacent uh, Lapis River and then entered the Somas River and then crossed the boundary uh, into Hungary before reaching the Tisa River. What you can see right here, especially with uh, Europe and Central European nations, uh, many countries uh, packed together in a relatively small area, the ability to have transnational uh, contamination from instance like this is quite high. In this particular case, I think there was probably at least a half a dozen countries involved as this uh, uh, contaminant plume moved down this aquatic ecosystem. The waste material was 100,000 cubic meters of liquid waste. It entered the water with about 7,800 milligrams per liter cyanide concentration. This is particularly significant. Uh, This is essentially 0.8% cyanide uh, solution. Uh, In terms of aquatic impacts and potential for aquatic toxicity, you'd need to dilute this significantly, Uh, to not see, to have a no-effect level on uh, the aquatic ecosystem. Uh, This came from the neighboring country in Hungary. Uh, This is a conservative estimate, but the release in terms of tonnage of cyanide was about 100 tons of material. Now, in terms of uh, fish and its acute chronic and sublethal toxicity, this is a good Uh, figure here in terms of charting out the lethal effects and the sublethal lethal lethal effects associated with uh, cyanide cyanide can bind the iron on various uh, enzymes uh, cytochrome type enzymes as well as hemoglobin in terms of uh, interfering with oxygen transport at the organismal and as well the cellular basis lethal effects the Acute concentration, this is LC50 for 96-hour uh, a, a wet test, uh, acute toxicity. Uh, the acute concentration is on the order of 50 to 200. Uh, um, this would be uh, micrograms per liter, or 0.5 to 0.2 milligrams per liter total cyanide. For chronic exposure, in terms of chronic uh, exposure leading to lethality, we have concentrations of 0.002 to 0.07 milligrams uh, per liter. Uh, Again, quite low concentrations uh, leading to lethality, especially compared to the 7,800 milligrams per liter in terms of the parent waste material. In terms of sublethal effects on fish, um, this uh, chart gives the activity or organ that's affected on this side, and then the nature of the effect um, at uh, these particular concentrations. The concentrations, for example, inhibiting uh, spawning and egg production are on the order of uh, 5 to 10 parts per billion. Egg viability is reduced by almost half at uh, .065 parts per million. Uh, Infertile eggs and spermatogenesis abnormal, again, in the low parts per billion range. Uh, embryonic development, hatching, swimming, deformities, uh, all of these, uh, again, in the subpart per million type concentrations. And so not only do we have the potential for acute lethality and chronic lethality, we have some sublethal effects here uh, in terms of reproductive and developmental toxicity, all being significant in terms of survival of the species in some of these pop uh, ecosystem areas. In terms of the scope of contamination, uh, this chart uh, gives you uh, essentially a timeline. And we'll look at a graphic here in a moment. Uh, But uh, as the people uh, in the neighboring communities uh, and countries uh, were alerted of this, uh, there was an initial order to uh, monitor, obviously, in terms of uh, safety from drinking water or consumption of uh, wildlife, especially fish, from uh, the contaminated ecosystem. Uh, In in a spring in Romania, the cyanide was testing at 800 times uh, higher than the allowed concentration. As you go down in the date, and here's February 1st, 2000 at the top of the graph, and this is about two weeks later, February 13th, you can see that as we're going down um, uh, in uh, the location, uh, down gradient in the rivers and streams, you can see that the concentration is generally dis- decreasing. Uh, the concentration at, in Hungary was still 32 parts per million, significantly o- over the lethal, acute lethal uh, impact levels. The other thing that was released, by the way, is also the heavy metal consortia associated with the mining operation. Significant quantities of lead at 540 micrograms per liter and copper at 12,000 uh, micrograms uh, per liter. Uh, significantly high heavy metal content as well. What you can see as you go down this list and you can look at the slide yourself is that uh, at uh, two weeks later, uh, we were almost at, still at concentrations uh, approaching a half a part per million to a part per million, uh, sufficient for some acute and chronic uh, lethality in uh, aquatic species. This graphic gives you a little bit of better uh, uh, array of that same data. Uh, it's fairly uh, interesting. This is the uh, day uh, from the uh, zero time of the incident. So here's uh, time zero at this end, and this is two weeks later. And these uh, stacked graphs are the direction of flow. And so these are monitoring stations down gradient in the aqua- affected aquatic ecosystem in this axis this is the milligrams per liter of cyanide concentration starting off here at zero and up at this axis at 14 parts per million you can see that early on in the in the incident uh, we had significant uh, double-digit part per million concentrations for quite some time it took about uh, a week or so for those to start coming down into single digits but you can see that there was relatively good conservation of dose as you went down in this aquatic ecosystem that we are still bordering on one to two parts per million uh, two to four parts per million for a significant amount of time so what this was demonstrating and if you can look at per for for example this one green uh, uh, graph right here in the middle that this is typical plug flow that the contamination plug came into this monitoring station it reached its maxima and then decreased over time and so this was a very large plug of uh, contaminated water and if you look at the base of each one of these peaks you can see that this high concentration uh, especially if we take uh, mean with half maximum we take an average here that average relatively high concentration, exceeding a part per million, lasted for several days. This is significant uh, in terms of the timing and the dosage allowed to these particular aquatic ecosystems. Uh, This is a formula for sure kill, uh, because uh, none of the inhabitants could uh, uh, escape the uh, potential advection and dispersion of the contaminant as it came down this fairly large aquatic ecosystem. The polluted waters move downstream to the Danube uh, and that forms Romania's border with Bulgaria for over 500 miles. Uh, Various countries along this impacted waterway banned water intake in the Danube uh, and fishing in the Danube uh, as it moved down towards the Black Sea. Of concern to uh, wildlife ecologists was the fact that the Black Sea Delta, uh, like many uh, estuarine ecosystems, uh, is a very biologically productive area. A lot of nesting and spawning activity happening in the Delta. Uh, This had a dramatic impact uh, in terms of uh, wildlife populations and communities. The spill eradicated uh, life in the water. Cyanide is a very potent acute toxin at these concentrations. Uh, There's about 250 miles of river that, in terms of major life forms, was effectively sterilized. It killed thousands of fish in Hungary and in the former Yugoslav Republic. These figures show some of the uh, cleanup operations in terms of trying to get the abandoned, uh, uh, the uh, killed uh, populations uh, out of the water, the idea to prevent secondary toxicosis to any sort of predators or carnivores that might feed on these carcasses. This shows you a little bit uh, about the terrestrial mortality. Uh, Many species of animals uh, uh, use aquatic ecosystems, uh, whether for cover or for food chain effects, uh, whether it be livestock or uh, avian species. This is a particularly acute uh, uh, lethality. Uh, Birds that were feeding on the fish uh, in this particular ecosystem or the plant life uh, were exposed to high concentrations of cyanide. It was obviously great public health concern uh, when you've got uh, a substantial water body like the Danube where you've got an incredible uh, toxic plume coming down, uh, toxic enough that uh, uh, it would be lethal even to higher mammals. You saw the uh, mule in the previous slide. Uh, This caused a tremendous outrage in terms of public health, environmental quality. Uh, concern about the management of uh, some of these industrial operations in other countries, Uh, a lot of international concern as well, essentially uh, the operations and the environmental law, and the industrial development in one country contaminated the ecosystems of several surrounding countries, and this can cause tremendous international tensions. Our next case study was Enzo Coyar, Spain, and this happened in April 25, 1998, again in our recent environmental history. I decided to use this one because it too was a tailings dam failure, and so this kind of talks about some of these mining challenges that continues our discussion of some of the challenges of these large operations. Uh, Again, mining are large, messy operations. It requires a lot of uh, production of ore and some of the waste products of ore. Uh, It's a tremendously difficult uh, job to be able to do in a way that minimizes impact to the environment. And quite often, these activities to minimize the impact are costly. And so it is perhaps a challenge for some countries and some companies to stay in business and still do mining. What happens when we have poor engineering of tailings dams, as in this particular case, you can see that the dramatic impacts that the cost of failure far outweighs the cost of maintaining and engineering uh, robust solutions to the challenge of these mining impacted environments. What happened here in Enzo was that a, uh, there was a dam failure at the Los Frailes lead-zinc mine in Enzo And this is near Seville, Spain. This is uh, uh, not far from the coast. It released 4 to 5 million cubic meters of tailing slurries. And again, tailings being this powdery uh, material that is uh, wasted after the uh, extraction of the mineral uh, concentrates during the flotation process in uh, milling operations for mining. It uh, released into the Rio Agrio, and then uh, into uh, the Rio uh, Guadiamar. This slurry wave uh, of materials, obviously with uh, acid rock drainage, high heavy metals, uh, it covered 5,000 hectares of farmlands, including parts of the Doñana protected area. This is one of the largest protected areas in the EU, and it was a World Heritage Site. Here's a situation where the slurry covered not only uh, was released into aquatic ecosystems, but also spilled off into low-lying flatlands as well. Give you an idea of where we're at. Uh, So we're just outside of Seville. Uh, We're actually not too far from the coast in terms of where the water gradient is flowing. This gives you an idea of some of the pictures of this, and I have the AP feed. This is an AP photograph uh, in this particular thing. You can see the size of the tailings dam break here. Uh, so behind here, this is the tailings impoundment. You can see the layers of slurry. Uh, this would appear to be usually dark-colored, uh, sulfur-smelling sand uh, quite often, usually uh, heavy metal uh, concentrations in the low percents, uh, so 1%, 2 3%. Uh, Usually high iron, you can see some iron staining here. Uh, What happens when you have a tailings dam here, and so it's impounded behind this engineered dam, is that you get uh, uh, some deposition of the uh, uh, sand materials, the tailings materials at the bottom, and there's water on the top. The water is typically acidic. Uh, in terms of reading the AP feed, an aerial view of the dike of a mine reservoir outside the southern Spanish city of Seville, Monday, April 27, 1998, after it burst dumping an estimated 5 million cubic meters of toxic waste into the Guadiamar River. Hastily constructed dikes diverted the toxic liquid away from Danyana Park, one of Europe's most prized natural preserves, and towards the Guadalajara River. Which flows into the Atlantic Ocean 37 miles downstream. This gives you an idea of what a slurry uh, of this uh, material looks like, and these are reduced uh, sulfide containing uh, substrates uh, in part of this. And you can kind of see that there is a potential impact of what look like agricultural lands. Uh, To read the AP feed, uh, a black stain of toxic mud coming from a broken dike in a mine reservoir covers the countryside near Enzo in southern Spain this is another image again showing you the break in the dam uh, in the uh, containing the uh, tailings from this gold mining operation Uh, this particular gold mining operation was uh, managed by an international uh, consortium uh, by an uh, Australian firm led by an Australian firm this shows you the uh, impacted farmland. Again, the tailings uh, spill off into, in this particular case, orchards. The uh, farmer here dumping uh, some of the contaminated uh, vegetables from this particular incident. It was impacted aquatic habitat uh, about 60 kilometers of the Guadiamar principal riverbed was absolutely destroyed, according to one of the researchers, uh, the ecologist working on this particular site. So this did have dramatic uh, aquatic ecosystem impacts. It contaminated uh, agricultural areas. Remember that if we have heavy metals that are depositing in agricultural soils, there is a potential for impact beyond the initial contamination because of root processes uh, over time. We're going to switch now uh, to our final uh, area of case studies, and this is ionizing radiation. We'll talk uh, about several uh, incidents uh, of uh, uh, environmental contamination with radionuclides. But before we get to that, we'd like to be able to just introduce and go back uh, and provide a foundation for you on uh, radionuclides and the ionizing radiation they can produce. We can define ionizing radiation, and this is uh, x-rays and alpha particles, and they can cause chemical reactions and alterations of chemicals in tissues. Uh, This is uh, associated with uh, radionuclide poisoning, and uh, ionizing radiation is the worst kind or the strongest kind of uh, radionuclide emissions. They can be toxic or fatal, much of the reactivity uh, within organisms actually starts with the reaction of these high-energy uh, uh, waves or particles uh, with the water molecule itself. When we do have the ionizing radiation impacting water, we produce, we can produce superoxide radical, we can produce hydroxyl radical, hydroperoxy radicals, and hydrogen peroxide. This should give you at least pause to reflect back on our lecture discussions of oxidative stress. There are other processes, chemical processes, that also produce these highly potent oxidants. And so our antioxidant processes uh, that compensate for our respiratory oxidation are the same ones that can manage uh, ionizing radiation. Typically what happens, though, is that these... uh, um, uh, radionuclides produce uh, such a level of uh, oxidation that it uh, uh, exceeds the capacity of the organism to repair itself, and essentially uh, the uh, oxidants uh, damage sufficient amount of cell walls, uh, releasing uh, some of the contents of the cells, and there is uh, tissue damage at multiple levels. If we recall the endpoints of oxidative stress, remember lipid peroxidation, DNA strand breaks, enzyme inactivation, covalent binding uh, to uh, nucleic acids and also to proteins. All of these can be the endpoints of ionizing radiation as well. We can also have direct ionization of various organic molecules uh, in uh, the biological system and these can yield very reactive carbonium ions. These carbonium ions have a nasty habit of alkylating DNA. Alkylated DNA is mutated DNA, and so ionizing radiation is a mutagen. One of the examples in terms of our own exposure to ionizing radiation, and there is a normal natural background of ionizing radiation, whether it be from cosmic rays that come to us uh, from, the, uh, from space or from ionizing radiation in background materials in uh, the Earth. One of these is radon. Radon is a byproduct of uh, naturally occurring minerals, typically granitic minerals. Uh, It's a noble gas, it emits alpha particles, and so it thus is ionizing radiation. The problem with radon gas is when we build houses, especially houses that have basements in granitic areas, there is a possibility that radon, as a gas, can accumulate in these spaces and uh, present uh, significant risk uh, to the people living in that house. Uh, You may have seen radon test kits in your local hardware store uh, these are especially popular in areas uh, where there are mineral formations in the subsurface that have the potential to yield radon gas. In terms of our exposure, the health physicists that do the calculations in terms of exposure to various typical uh, levels of ionizing radiation, background levels, cosmic rays, uh, the number of airplane flights, chest x rays that we get, they calculate in terms of our risk, and typically when we deal with risk associated with ionizing radiation, we talk about risks of increased cancer rates, that the major risk in terms of the American population from ionizing radiation is actually from this potential for accumulated radon gas in basements. Now radiation sickness is a term that you may have heard, and this is typically associated with, again, an overload of our systems I always like to think of uh, radiation sickness as what happens when we have these microscopic uh, machine guns uh, spitting out these high energy particles, these high energy particles that have the ability to uh, ionize the chemicals around them. Uh, Radiation sickness is the general term for the illness that is caused by the effects of radiation on body tissues, and it's a uh, uh, multi-symptomatic process. It can be acute, it can be delayed, or it can be chronic. It may occur as a result of cumulative exposure to various small doses of radiation. Uh, It could also uh, be uh, from the exposure to solar radiation. So uh, when you get a a second-degree sunburn, this is a form of radiation sickness. This is the ultraviolet burning the cells and causing destruction of the dermal layer on your skin. Uh, the symptoms of radiation sickness may be mild and transitory, or they can be severe depending upon dose and the type of radiation and the rate at which uh, the exposure was experienced. Some of the symptoms of radiation sickness can be weakness, loss of appetite, vomiting, diarrhea, a tendency to bleed, um, and this is, uh, has to do with uh, the perforations of our vascular system from these uh, oxidants, Increased susceptibility to infection because of damage to the immune cells. And in severe cases, we can experience brain damage and death, possible long term genetic effects from mutated DNA. And as well, uh, the big predictor of outcome is increased uh, cancer rates. Now, there are uh, alpha, beta, and gamma particles associated with uh, uh, nuclear uh, radionuclide uh, emissions. An alpha particle is defined as a positively charged particle that is ejected spontaneously from the nuclei of some radioactive elements, and we'll talk about some of those here in terms of the ones of most concern in terms of environmental toxicology. Alpha particles, however, have a low penetrating power and a short range. Um, Most of the time, uh, in terms of dermal absorption, it really won't get past the dead layers of skin. Uh, one of the things that uh, you have to be most concerned about uh, with all radionuclides and even alpha particles is when you have ingested uh, or inhaled an alpha particle and it becomes resident within the organism. And so then the damage that's happening is with active tissues, uh, sometimes lung tissues, gut tissues, and uh, if this, in fact, it gets incorporated uh, into uh, a storage uh, sequestration area like bone tissue for strontium-90. This is uh, a potential long-term toxicant that will increase cancer rates. A beta particle is a charged particle emitted from a nucleus during radioactive decay. It actually has a mass. Its mass is equal to 1 over 1837 of that of a protein. It is negatively charged. uh, When it is negatively charged, it is identical to an electron, and a positively charged uh, beta particle is called a proton. Uh, beta particles, beta radiation, are of great concern. These are the, the, the big boys, if you will. Um, they can be uh, cause skin burns um, if harmful, and again, if they uh, enter the body. Uh, beta particles uh, are not particularly energetic, typically, and they can uh, be stopped by thin sheets of metal or plastic. Uh, Sometimes uh, you will be working uh, in in some laboratory operations with uh, radio-labeled chemicals as uh, a way to look at metabolism or look at particular chemical processes. These are typically alpha or beta particles. Uh, You don't do gamma uh, ray uh, emitters uh, in laboratory operations. Gamma rays are extraordinarily high energy, short wavelength. Uh, These are electromagnetic electromagnetic radiation. So these are packets of energy from the nucleus. Uh, These are the greatest concern in terms of the ability of a radionuclide to have a dramatic impact on the survivability of the organism. We frequently have gamma radiation accompanying uh, the emission of uh, alpha or uh, beta uh, particles. Uh, It always accompanies fission. Uh, Gamma rays are the uh, penetrating kind of rays and so these are the ones that uh, you need lead bricks, uh, uh, many feet of concrete. Uh, These are the types of rays that most people associate with nuclear activities like power plants uh, and uh, weapons materials that need to be shielded uh, because of their high degree of lethality. Um, They need to be shielded with dense materials such as lead or uranium. Gamma rays are higher energy, uh, uh, packets of energy, uh, similar in that regard to X-rays. One of the ways that we can talk about radionuclides is to refer to them by their half-life. This gives us an idea of how long they're going to be a problem. Uh, For example, in nuclear medicine, we typically use radionuclides for imaging purposes, diagnostic purposes, or therapy purposes that have relatively short half-lives on the order of hours to a few days. Half-life is defined as the time at which one half of the atoms of a particular radioactive substance disintegrates into another nuclear form. And so these half-lives can be from the millionths of a second to uh, billions of years. And our major concerns in terms of hazardous waste management associated with radionuclides have to do with half-lives uh, that are well over a dozen years. One of the, This is a photograph of Madame Curie, who uh, helped to uh, discover radioactivity and was had a unit of radioactivity uh, named after her one curie is equal to about 3.7 times 10 to the 10th disintegrations per second uh... this is a common uh, unit of radioactivity uh... it's been replaced in the SI system by becquerels and becquerels uh... have the relationship where one curie is equal to 37 gigabecquerels and so You will hear uh, both terms in common use. Carry is a little bit of a holdover, uh, and Becquerel is a more modern term. We can also define radioactive decay, and this is the decrease in the amount of any radioactive material with the passage of time. And this is due to the spontaneous natural emission from the atomic nuclei, Of either alpha or beta particles and again we often see this occurring with the release of an energy burst as gamma radiation now in the US we have uh, regulatory uh, structures in terms of managing uh, nuclear materials radionuclides the standards are issued uh, by the Environmental Protection Agency under the Atomic Energy Act of 1954 and this uh, legislation, this body of law, allows uh, these uh, the US EPA to impose limits on radiation uh, exposures and levels. This has to do, for example, with occupational exposures as well. Um, and uh, it also manages concentrations and quantities of radioactive material, uh, radioactive materials such as the material that we use in uh, many smoke detectors, americium, It uh, as well with this body of law, uh, legislate the various types of authorities and people that can possess various types of radionuclides in terms of licensing, uh, manufacture and distribution. Talk about a case study here. This predates uh, many of the students uh, in this course. Uh, This was something uh, that I lived through. This is Three Mile Island. Uh, this accident began about 4 a.m. on the morning of March 28, 1979. Uh, the, uh, this particular uh, plant uh, in uh, the eastern United States experienced a failure in a secondary non-nuclear section of the main plant, uh, and there was a coolant pump failure. And so it wasn't in the nuclear housing, but it was in the cooling operations for the nuclear reactor. The most disturbing thing from a personal basis about this was um, there happened to be a popular movie playing at the time uh, that was uh, very uh, similar in terms of uh, what might happen uh, if a nuclear power plant had a meltdown. Uh, because the public, because of this movie, uh, the public was sensitized, uh, or perhaps overly sensitized, to the risks of uh, nuclear power, nuclear energy, especially in populated areas. And then uh, pretty much within uh, a matter of months to have what amounts to uh, the most serious nuclear accident on U.S. soil happen uh, was uh, uh, extraordinarily disturbing for many people. Uh, It was disturbing for me. Uh, uh, I was uh, in college or graduate school at this particular time. Uh, Many of us uh, were watching our TV, watching our news uh, uh, for what might happen, uh, again, uh, having seen essentially uh, in a movie portrayal uh, what amounted to an almost worst-case scenario. Uh, In this particular situation, this backup coolant valve was not reopened after a test uh, two days earlier, and so human error was responsible for this. Uh, this gave some uh, erroneous coolant water and level readings in the reactor. Uh, the reading was high um, it was showing high but it was actually low due to gas bubble voids uh, because it was starting to get hot and so the uh, volume of the water because of the the bubbles the gas bubbles that were forming in the boiling operation there was an h2 gas buildup in the containment structure. Uh, h2 has a flash point when Uh, exposed to oxygen, meaning it's explosive. And so you have an explosive situation inside of the nuclear reactor. Um, In this particular case, the top of the fuel rods did melt. Uh, This uh, melting process, the idea of a nuclear meltdown, uh, started to occur. The idea that once uh, this achieves critical mass, this nuclear meltdown can essentially uh, melt through Uh, the uh, earth's surface and keep going down uh, obviously uh, beyond any sort of human uh, containment structure. This image here has uh, from the AP feed from the time stub ends of broken fuel assemblies adhering to the bottom of the Three Mile Island uh, uh, damaged Unit 2 reactor. Now, Three Mile Island uh, was uh, in Pennsylvania, and uh, there were communities and towns nearby. Uh, this particular uh, newspaper photograph uh, from the AP, this was a scene at Goldsboro, Pennsylvania on March 31, 1979, three days after the nuclear accident in Three Mile Island uh, in Middletown, Pennsylvania. Most people in the area following the nuclear accident either evacuated or stayed indoors in the background at the center of one of the is one of the cooling towers you can see that right uh, down here one of the cooling towers uh, of the nuclear facility March 28 1999 was the 20th anniversary of the nation's largest nuclear accident Uh, so we've gone past 25 years as of today Another picture here shows the uh, cooling towers and the cooling stacks for the Unit 2 reactor in the foreground. This is the one that had the nuclear accident are dormant, and again, this is in celebration or recognition of the 20th anniversary of this accident. Uh, there was a partial meltdown, only the reactor and cooling stacks at Unit 1 have continued to produce power, and so this Three Mile Island operation is still happening. Uh, The shutdown of the uh, Unit 2 uh, continues to this day. Now, it was of interest with the public health authorities to go into this situation and examine uh, the public health and environmental impacts uh, in terms of this near meltdown. Uh, there were thousands of environmental samples of various uh, media, such as air, water, and milk, vegetation, uh, soil, and foodstuffs that were collected uh, looking for potential uh, radionuclides from the releases happening during this incident. The observation in terms of scientific analysis of this was that there were very low levels of radionuclides in this uh, these samples that could be attributed uh, to releases from the accident. Various comprehensive investigations and assessments uh, by several uh, organizations uh, concluded that in spite of the damage to the reactor, uh, most of the radiation was contained and the actual release had very negligible effects uh, on the physical health of the individuals or the environment. Uh, The calculated average dose uh, to the community members around this incident uh, was less than that of an x-ray and much, much less than background. So although this was a serious uh, incident, uh, and it did go through the initial stages of a meltdown, it was caught in time prior to any sort of explosive release of uh, uh, radioactive material. Uh, Typically, uh, or I'm sorry, what happened in this particular case was a a release of gas pressure and some radioactive gases, uh, not necessarily radioactive solids. When the Epidemiologists went back and looked at the 20-year cancer epidemiology, uh, the overall number of deaths from cancer, and this is what we look at uh, in terms of uh, uh, one of the indicators of exposure to radioactive materials. But they found that the overall number of deaths from cancer was not significantly different from the general population within a five mile radius of the incident so this is some good news there was however a small rise in the number of lymphatic and blood cancer deaths among women in the exposed Uh, the exposed group. And so whether or not this was a statistical blip or a real cause effect, uh, there was an observation in terms of positive relationship in the exposed cohort to increased uh, risk of cancer of the lymphatic and blood systems in women. Another incident that's in uh, our environmental history is that of Chernobyl. Chernobyl was the largest nuclear accident uh, on the planet. Uh, i give you, again, the AP feed here, and you can see in this particular photograph the reactor in this whole center area has exploded out. Uh, this is a pretty significant uh, damaged reactor. You can read about Chernobyl and some of the incidents. The follow-up, follow-up analysis is still occurring to this day. Uh, The an aerial view of the Chernobyl nuclear power reactor in Chernobyl, Ukraine, shows damage from an explosion and fire on April 26, 1986. The blast killed 31 people and sent large amounts of dangerous radioactive material into the atmosphere. The contamination was carried across Western Europe by the wind to Sweden, Finland, and northern part of Britain, France, and Italy. The ghosts of history's worst nuclear reactor accident lurked everywhere in the surrounding countryside for more than 10 years later as more than 40,000 people were diagnosed with cancer. And so here's a situation where there was a tremendous environmental release of radionuclides and impact to not only the human population, but to many species of wildlife. Environmental impacts uh, were significant in this particular image. uh, A Ukrainian Academy of Sciences member shows a four-legged chick, obviously a mutation, in his laboratory. Uh, He's been studying the biological mutations in area wildlife uh, since April 86, and he's found dozens of new bacteria and viruses and new forms of plant and animal diseases following this particular catastrophe. Uh, The cause-effect in these kind of uh, uh, follow-up investigations is always difficult, but you can do some epidemiological background analysis of unimpacted zones and come up with reasonably conclusive cause-effect. In Chernobyl, uh, it was dramatic because, in fact, in this particular case, uh, the nuclear processes produced an explosive situation. It wasn't a nuclear explosion. But uh, because the containment was broken, uh, a large amount of material was actually uh, released into the atmosphere. So there was a plume and a deposition. There was tremendous concern about that plume. It was tracked uh, atmospherically. Uh, There was potential uh, concern for the quality of dairy products, primarily from the incorporation of strontium-90, which behaves chemically very much like calcium and the incorporation of that into dairy products, for example, in Finland. Um, This 1986 aerial view of the reactor for Chernobyl shows the damage from the explosion and fire that sent uh, this amount of radioactive material. Uh, The plant uh, in 1999 uh, was still running because of the particular uh, energy problems in the Ukraine. You can see that the sarcophagus, as they call it, that they built uh, around the the damaged area, there's not much you can do when you have uh, a radioactive uh, uh, site like this other than uh, uh, box it up. And in fact, that's what was done. Uh, This particular site, uh, in terms of the initial follow-up, was uh, characterized by some tremendous heroics. that uh, by by individual workers and community members in terms of mitigating or the early responders, uh, many of those people subsequently died not only from radiation sickness but from the cancers from the high intense radioactivity associated with this damaged site. In the U.S., uh, because of our uh, nuclear weapons uh, uh, processes and Uh, creation in the 1950s and some of the tests in the 1960s as well. We have, from our, in terms of our major challenge, a major, uh, mixed waste challenge from these manufacturing operations. This continues to this day and will be with us for decades to come. This mixed waste combines radioactive material, and this can be low-level, high-level, or transuranic TRU-type waste. It combines these, these radioactive wastes with hazardous waste, and these hazardous wastes can be typical sort of solvents, again, in heavy metals. Mm-hmm. The scale of the contamination problem is significant. There are 4,000 DOE contaminated sites and about 7,000 DOD contaminated sites, and these again, are mixed waste sites. The hazardous waste, uh, in terms of a typical profile, includes solvents like TCE, tetrachloroethylene, chromium lead, or PHCs, petroleum hydrocarbons. And so typically we now have, in terms of managing the waste, we not only have concern, for example, of, of how to degrade a solvent, how to remove a solvent, but we also have to manage the radionuclides in there. And so the risk management becomes extraordinarily complex. The radioactive wastes of highest concern in terms of the U.S. mixed waste challenge include tritium, 14-carbon, 99-technetium, iodine 131 and 129, uh, radioactive xenon, cesium-137, uh, uranium-238, plutonium from nuclear weapons production, and americium-241. Americium is also used in our smoke detectors in our houses. Now... Tritium, or 3-hydrogen as it's called, um, has a half-life of 12.3 years. Uh, We use it occasionally in laboratory experiments for labeling. Um, It's uh, a beta emitter. It uh, emits with an energy of uh, 0.019 megaelectron volts, or MEVs. Uh, This is a relatively weak energy in terms of uh, other uh, nuclear emissions. Uh, because it's hydrogen, it's highly mobile. It commingles uh, with hydrogen in the natural environment spontaneously. Uh, 99% of uh, what has been released appears as tritiated water, and so that's HTO. Uh, it is a product of cosmic radiation, so there is a natural background of tritium. Uh, it's a process byproduct from weapons production uh, and reactors. You may have heard of heavy water before. Uh, Tritiated water is heavy water. Uh, in terms of natural sources in the natural background, there's about uh, 30 uh, megacuries, and we have uh, contributed to that in terms of uh, uh, some of our 1960s weapons tests. Uh, in terms of uh, it enhancing the natural background uh, by an overall number of 4,500 megacuries. Uh, It's not considered a major toxicological hazard. Uh, It does have uh, some problems in groundwater uh, around uh, nuclear-impacted sites. Carbon-14 has a half-life of uh, over 5,000 years. It's a beta emitter at about 0.156, so it's a little bit higher energy than uh, tritium. It's involved with carbon chemistry. It's used in laboratory processes quite often. It's virtually inseparable from carbon-12. It's sufficiently low concentration. It's actually considered uh, exempted from uh, a um, treatment as a nuclear waste. There's no known uh, physical or chemical process that can concentrate this particular radioisotope. It's a normal part of background radiation. Uh, It comes to us from cosmic radiation impacting on uh, carbon molecules, carbon dioxide uh, in the atmosphere and being incorporated into biological systems. There's about 300 megacuries in the natural background uh, from natural sources and we find it in the environment in carbonate and carbon dioxide systems. Technetium-99, its half-life is actually goes through a, uh, its transition to a two-step decay. Uh, its first transition is a six-hour half-life to a metastable state of 99, and then a 20,000-year half-life uh, for 99. It's a gamma emitter and a beta emitter, uh, it has a gamma uh, uh, emission of 0.142, so pretty potent, uh, megaelectron volts, and a beta emission of 0.293. Uh, it uh, f- it's, uh, decays, it uh, d- comes to us from uh, U-235 emission, uh, molybdenum 98 decay, and uh, technetium uh, 99 and uh, we find it in the natural environment as technetium plus seven oxidation state, the pertechnate uh, anion, uh, oxyanion uh, TcO4 minus. Uh, you can imagine this has uh, some uh, potential to be mobile or to dissolve in waters. Uh, as when it's oxidized as TcO4, it is soluble. It's slightly sorbed to minerals. Uh, it's one of the most uh, uh, its TCO two is the most common form in natural groundwater, typically available in trace concentrations under nuclear impacted zones at ten to the minus ninth uh, molar concentrations. Of particular interest is iodine one twenty nine and one thirty one. Its half life is uh, one is a uh, hundred million years. Uh, I'm sorry, ten million years. One point uh, six times ten to the minus seventh years for one twenty nine. 131 is a half-life of 8.404 days. Uh, iodine-131 has some medical applications in terms of imaging. Uh, It's used for thyroid analysis. It is a beta emitter of 0.15 megaelectron volts, a gamma emitter, and it does have a uh, 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 beta emission and a gamma emission of 0.3 megaelectron volts for 131 and so it can actually be used to destroy tissue we find uh, we uh, produce uh, iodine-131 from uranium uh, fission uh, as it turns out uh, it can be oxidized uh, uh, iod- iod- to iodate in solution it's probably primarily predominantly found in the environment as iodate solution Xenon-133 is a common gas uh, associated with gas phase uh, nuclear releases. Uh, its half-life is 5.2 days, so it's got a relatively short half-life. Uh, it is a beta uh, emitter. Um, it's uh, 0.606 megaelectron volts, and so it's, it packs a pretty good punch. Uh, it's gamma at 0.081 mega volts. Since it's a nobel gas, it's inert uh, and therefore uh, has, uh, is limited in terms of its chemical reactivity. Uh, it can be solubilized in plastics and polymers, and so uh, containing xenon-133 is difficult. Uh, it's not concentrated in living systems, and so the risk analysis from radioactive uh, xenon is less than some of the other players. Cesium-137 is a problem. Its half-life is uh, 30.17 years. You find cesium-137 in medical diagnostic uh, uh, uses, uh, for instance, uh, gamma ray imaging devices. Um, It has a beta energy of uh, 0.512 and a gamma uh, uh, energy of 0.662. And so this combination is going to yield a situation where cesium-137 has to be highly shielded. Uh, This is going to be lead-contained. This is going to be contained uh, uh, by uh, yards worth of cement uh, in any sort of diagnostic uh, application. Cesium-137, for example, uh, can be used to image pipes in industrial operations. It's a group one alkali metal, so it's highly soluble. It's stable in an aqueous environmental form. So once released, uh, there's its problems in terms of uh, incorporating into the natural environment. It's a very uh, devilishly hard radionuclide to clean up because of its incorporation into the soil structures, uh, into uh, uh, components such as concrete or asphalt. Uh, it's uh, uh, associated with many, many mineral substrates in contaminated areas. Uranium-238 has a half-life of uh, 4 times 10 to the minus ninth years, and so it's going to be around for a very, very long time, uh, forever in terms of the human time scale. Uh, it's an alpha emitter at 4.2 mega electron volts, so it packs a pretty good punch. Its valence states... Uh, include all, zero all the way up to uh, an, a valence state of four. It occurs in nature as various oxide forms, uh, uh, and soluble oxide forms and insoluble oxide forms. Uh, quite often we find uranyl complexes uh, and these can be uh, uh, as such as carbonates uh, in the local uh, groundwater environments. The retardation that is observed for various uh, uranyl and uranium oxide uh, uh, contaminants uh, vary on a case-by-case basis with the mineral substrates. Uh, We have a problem with uranium in groundwater and in soil from underground nuclear testing that happened during the 50s and the 60s plutonium 239 is uh, the major radionuclide used in nuclear weapons. It has a half-life of over uh, 20,000 years. It's an alpha emitter and others. Uh, It does have uh, a fairly complex uh, decay process. In terms of environmental contamination, we can have oxidation states uh, from 2 to 6 to 7 that exist. Uh, All of them, uh, or mostly all of them, can exist in water. The environmental chemistry of plutonium uh, is somewhat similar to uh, uranium. Uh, It can exist uh, as a colloidal and stable hydroxide in solution. It does sorb to rocks, and this is a good thing in terms of groundwater migration, but sometimes uh, complexing organic ligands can actually promote dissolution and migration in the subsurface. 241 americium uh, is uh, of interest because it uh, is uh, found in many households. Uh, It is a uh, fairly uh, high-energy alpha emitter and gamma emitter. It's a common alpha radiation source. We use it in smoke detectors because small amounts of americium uh, can ionize smoke particles. These ionized smoke particles then can trigger off an electrostatic detector and a smoke alarm. Uh, it's uh, In terms of the environment, it forms uh, some stable uh, oxides. It's stable in solution. It can be strongly uh, absorbed by common uh, rocks and ambient pH and uh, it can actually also, like uh, plutonium, be complexed by various types of ligands, then this will increase its solubility and potential migration in the subsurface. In the US, we've got, uh, as you can imagine, a significant mixed-waste challenge, just in terms of the number, but also the diversity of these contaminated sites. The challenge uh, in terms of uh, the United States of managing this contamination, we try uh, to adopt the TMV approach to just generalize hazardous waste management, and that's a reduction in the toxicity, the mobility, or the volume of the waste. Now remember that these are elemental wastes, uh, even though they're radioactive elements, and so we can never completely destroy them and so quite often what we try to do is uh, manage them uh, by uh, boxing it, bag it, barrel it, uh, and store it. Now the mixed waste has to do with the fact that these are mixtures of organic and inorganic hazardous waste in addition to the Um Some of these uh, approaches can be limited by the various chemistry of the metals We sometimes have to deal in some of these contaminated soups with multiple oxidation states. Uh, You can get a sense that these challenges are extraordinarily complex. Uh, Hazardous waste in and of itself is a complex uh, undertaking in terms of environmental engineering. When you add the radionuclides, radioactive uh, materials, uh, it becomes exponentially more difficult to manage. In terms of the US strategy there's a relative risk consideration Uh, the worst players in terms of a triage uh, are managed uh, separately from the lower-level wastes and so examining the half-life the energy and the mobility uh, in terms of segregating the tasks the various receptor sites and some of the costs obviously for the transuranics the higher energy uh, wastes uh, they're going to be extraordinarily uh, expensive some of these facilities, such as the Hanford uh, facility, have operation budgets in excess of a billion dollars per year targeted towards environmental management. One of the strategies in mixed waste management is to separate the radionuclide, the radioactive waste from the uh, hazardous material. Take a look at separating as well the organic from the inorganic. And so typical hazardous waste management approaches, like adsorption onto carbon, uh, incineration in some cases, uh, pyrolysis, uh, various sorts of treatments can be used for the traditional hazardous wastes. But uh, typically, the approach that works best in mixed waste is a volume reduction, because inevitably, we are going to be storing this material, because again, we can't destroy it. So we want to be able to store the smallest volume because the containers, the sites, the landmass required for storage is pretty significant. One of the approaches to reducing the volume of mixed waste is called vitrification. Vitrification, as you'll see in uh, the little video that we'll show here, is a way to glassify or encase in glass uh, some of these uh, heavy-duty radionuclides. These uh, glass uh, glass have long term uh, geological stability uh, that you can 't leach out of a glass, and so this gives uh, at least uh, hazardous waste managers a little bit of hope for the immediate uh, uh, storage and disposition of these mixed wastes. There are, however, some very big how to questions uh, this is an active area of research and engineering. Uh, Many of the technologies that are being used, and you'll hear this in the video as well, are fairly experimental. We're going down pathways in terms of hazardous waste management, mixed waste management uh, we've never had to deal with before. Uh, Many of this is due to the expediency uh, back in World War II of the development. Uh, There wasn't a lot of care concern or perhaps even knowledge of environmental impacts, environmental contamination. There was a clear and present danger in terms of World War II and uh, managing all of the military uh, concerns associated uh, with uh, developing nuclear arms nuclear weapons. We now have this legacy. uh, In a certain sense, uh, we won the battle uh, and we won the war, but we are still to this day managing the weapons and the tools of those victories. In terms of the Department of Energy, the focus areas of where they've put uh, their uh, resources, and that's in contaminant and plume uh, containment and remediation, uh, limiting mobility, toxicity mobility and volume is a major uh, hazardous waste management direction. Uh, Identifying the distribution, the concentration, where the plume is going, if it's in the subsurface. Again we buried a lot of our problems historically, they're coming back to haunt us. One of the primary approaches is uh, to do containment and in situ treatment to treat uh, it where it lies. And so even if it's in the subsurface, can we artificially create a barrier in the subsurface to contain it even uh, if it's a couple hundred feet down? The idea of digging it out is pretty unrealistic. And so can we inject materials to form an artificial barrier to keep, for instance, a contaminated plume from impacting groundwater? There has been a lot of effort on mixed waste characterization, uh, research into treatment and disposal. There is a lot of effort in low-level waste uh, and how to manage low-level waste, even low-level waste that comes out of uh, university research laboratories. Uh, We do have some lack of accepted treatment and disposal capacity uh, for many types of mixed waste. There are some focus areas in the Department of Energy. Uh, high-level waste tank remediation is a big problem. Quite often there were these, these below-ground storage tanks that were used to, to store slurries and liquid waste. Uh, unfortunately, many of these tanks were single-walled. Uh, the uh, steel that was in these tanks has deteriorated because of the uh, <coughs> radionuclide uh, reactive chemistry. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, Another area is uh, (coughs) landfill stabilization, uh, examination of the migration and plotting and modeling uh, where a plume is going and when it might impact a natural resource such as a a river, Uh, strategies about, again, in-situ containment and treatment, uh, there is some uh, significant amount of work on uh, decontaminating and decommissioning some of these facilities, getting rid of the buildings. Uh, we'll talk about several of those uh, here today in the, in the video, but also uh, in some other case studies. Uh, and then treatment considerations of developing the specific uh, new treatment chemistries uh, associated with hazardous waste remediation. One of the biggest challenges that we have in the Pacific Northwest, uh, one of the largest DOE sites uh, in the United States is the Hanford, Washington site. Uh, This is a World War II uh, photo of the Hanford uh, uh, Desert operations. This is the B Reactor. It was the world's first plutonium production reactor. Uh, When you do nuclear processes, uh, as you probably understand, you need uh, tremendous amounts of water for cooling processes. Uh, You can see here in the background of this plant, uh, this is the Columbia River, a major aquatic ecosystem for the Pacific Northwest. Um, Operations that contaminated uh, the groundwater and the soils beneath uh, active operations in Hanford have the ability to plume and follow the hydraulic gradient and down to the river, Uh, then it is highly mobile in terms of impacting many of the communities uh, downriver on this fairly large uh, river and system. The Columbia River, uh, in this particular photo, uh, this is a modern AP wire photo. This is the closed F reactor that has, um, on the Hanford Nuclear Reservation, this is near Richland, Washington. Finally, here today, what we're going to do is a short 10-minute uh, video. It's a case presentation. This is a DOE production. Uh, this is not an environmental activist group. This isn't uh, uh, perhaps uh, taking uh, a position other than the fact that this is going to cost uh, the U.S. taxpayers uh, billions of dollars uh, in the future uh, part of our uh, treatment of these mixed wastes.
1: the desert of southeastern washington is home to what may be the most contaminated area in the united states for more than forty years the u.s. government produced plutonium for nuclear weapons at the hanford site now with the cold war behind us the focus at hanford is on cleaning up the enormous amounts of radioactive and chemically hazardous wastes produced while making plutonium hanford was home to america's first plutonium production facilities production began in nineteen forty four as part of the manhattan project the world war II effort to build an atomic bomb plutonium from hanford was used in the bomb dropped on nagasaki japan in august of nineteen forty five for the next forty five years hanford's primary mission was to produce plutonium for use in nuclear weapons during that time hanford went through several major expansions Eventually, the government built nine nuclear production reactors, five chemical separation plants, and dozens of support facilities. Plutonium production ended at Hanford in 1990. The U.S. Department of Energy manages the 560 square mile Hanford site. Site workers are now engaged in one of the world's largest environmental cleanup projects. More than 1,500 waste sites have been identified at Hanford, ranging from small areas of surface contamination to 177 underground storage tanks that hold about 54 million gallons of highly radioactive and chemically hazardous waste. Some of Hanford's waste will remain dangerous for thousands of years. It must be kept away from people and the environment during that time. There is urgency to the cleanup. In many cases, the longer we delay, the more hazardous and expensive the problem becomes. Many storage facilities have exceeded their design life and are deteriorating, making it much more difficult to safely store the waste. Some of the waste poses a significant threat to workers, the public, and the environment. An accident or further spread of the contamination would also put the region's economy at risk. Much of the Hanford site is free of contamination, Large areas of the site were used as safety and security buffers. However, the central portion of the site, which consists of areas called 200 East and 200 West, has substantial problems. The 200 areas contain the underground storage tanks, the chemical processing plants, and other plutonium facilities. Spent fuel stored at two of the shutdown reactors along the Columbia River and laboratories, research facilities, and burial grounds at the south end of the site also pose significant cleanup challenges. The waste in Hanford's underground tanks presents one of the most urgent, complex, and costly challenges. 149 of the 177 tanks have just a single wall of carbon steel encased in concrete for containment. These tanks, which range in size from 55,000 to 1 million gallons, were never intended for long-term storage. The oldest of these tanks date back to the 1940s. Nearly 70 have leaked more than a million gallons of high-level radioactive waste to the ground. Some of this waste has reached the groundwater. The remaining 28 tanks have a double shell of steel, and none are believed to have leaked. These tanks, however, cannot be used indefinitely. In time, the double-shell tanks will also fail. Site workers have pumped much of the liquid out of the single-shell tanks into the double-shell tanks. When the liquids are removed, a semi-solid sludge-like material remains behind. Retrieving this sludge is itself a serious challenge, as some methods may result in more waste leaked to the soil. Plans are to separate the tank waste, including the sludge, into separate high and low activity waste streams. These wastes will then be vitrified, a process that mixes the radioactive waste with molten glass. The mixture is poured into stainless steel containers, where it will harden into a solid glass form. The majority of Hanford's vitrified waste will be low activity and will be buried on site. The canisters of highly radioactive waste will be stored indefinitely at Hanford until a National Geologic Repository becomes available. These wastes will still be radioactive, but they will no longer be mobile. As long as waste remains in these aging tanks, it poses a severe threat to the Columbia River. The U.S. Department of Energy is working with a private contractor to begin construction of the vitrification facilities. However, these facilities are not scheduled to be fully operational until December 2009. Under the current schedule, vitrifying the first 10% of Hanford's tank waste won't be complete until the year 2018. The remaining waste may not be completely vitrified for another 30 years. Leaks from the tanks, along with billions of gallons of radioactive and hazardous liquid waste that was disposed into the soil at Hanford, have contaminated more than 200 square miles of groundwater beneath the site. Efforts are underway to intercept and treat some of these waste plumes before they reach the Columbia River. Pumping the groundwater and treating it to remove some of the radioactive and chemical contaminants has met with some success. Another major problem at Hanford is more than 2,000 tons of spent nuclear fuel stored in two water-filled basins just a quarter mile from the Columbia River. The bottom of these basins are covered with as much as two to three feet of highly radioactive sludge. Much of the fuel is badly corroded. At least one of the basins has leaked in the past. Plans to move the fuel into storage containers away from the river are moving forward, but have suffered repeated setbacks and cost escalations. Removal of the spent fuel and sludge from the basins is scheduled to be complete in the next decade. Hanford's plutonium finishing plant also poses major technical and cost challenges. The facility contains several tons of plutonium in a variety of forms. Some of this plutonium must go through a stabilization process to allow safe long-term storage. Despite the threats posed by the deteriorating condition of this facility, Other, more urgent problems at Hanford have taken priority. The cost of the Hanford cleanup and the availability of sufficient funding is an ongoing concern. Cleanup will take decades and cost tens of billions of dollars. Construction of the tank waste treatment facilities will require an increase of more than half a billion dollars each year to Hanford's cleanup budget, which typically has exceeded one billion dollars a year. Congress has yet to demonstrate a willingness to commit to this level of spending for the 20 to 30 years or more that it will take to construct and operate the tank waste treatment facilities. Hanford is just one of about a dozen major sites around the country and more than 75 overall that were involved in producing materials for America's nuclear weapons program. Although Hanford has the most extensive contamination and waste problems, other sites have their own unique cleanup challenges. Hanford cleanup is governed by an agreement between the U.S. Department of Energy, the Federal Environmental Protection Agency, and the State of Washington. This cleanup plan, called the Tri-Party Agreement, was initially signed in 1989. The Tri-Party Agreement sets timetables for accomplishing the cleanup activities and covers about 30 years of work. Considerable progress has been made in some areas since cleanup began at Hanford in 1989. However, until the waste is removed from the tanks and solidified, the plutonium is stabilized, the spent fuel is moved away from the river, and other major cleanup projects are completed. Hanford's waste remains a serious threat to the Northwest and its residents.
0: Well, there you have a, uh, a good visual Uh, introduction to uh, the mixed waste challenge uh, in the United States. Uh, Next time, what we'll do is we'll transition from uh, perhaps the inorganic uh, side of environmental chemicals and the case studies that we've talked about to some organic chemicals. Uh, Specifically, next time, we'll talk about pentachlorophenol and PCBs. Until that time, we'll see you. Thanks so much.